So back in the fall, as we looked at Philippians chapter 1, we read Philippians 1.21, and I'm going to read that one, which says, um, this is, again, Paul speaking, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And Paul was saying this about himself, but also to make a point in our lives as, as believers, because to live is to be like Christ, and to die is to gain because we go to eternity in heaven. But we also read Philippians 1.27, and somebody has that one. I don't even know where it started today. And so what did Paul tell the Philippians, and by extension us, in the verse that Diane just read? 127. What does he want us to do? Yeah, to, to live our lives worthy of the gospel, right? This week, many weeks later, Paul finally gets started on giving some detailed reasons, or detailed um ways for us to live worthy of the gospel. We're going to get to the nuts and bolts of how to live our lives in a way that we are growing to be more like Christ and to grow in our spiritual life with him. And so our passage for today, we're going to read the whole thing. We'll reread parts of it as we go, but um, Philippians 2, 12 through 18. And so in the ESV, the one that's printed in your in your handouts, the heading for this passage is Lights in the World. But it could also be called Sanctification 101. Now, what is sanctification? Big word. The process of becoming more like Jesus. That's exactly right. It's it's becoming holy on a practical level. That's what that's what this passage is is teaching us. It's God's continuing work in the life of a believer. And so Paul is sharing the principles of spiritual growth and explaining personal holiness. In this passage, there in verse 12, what does Paul, who does Paul address? What word does he call the people he's talking to? Beloved. What does beloved mean? Yeah, people that you love, they're dearly loved, worthy of love, favored. That's the dictionary definition. 
biblically, biblically, when Paul is using it, and he uses it here and throughout his letters, he uses this word, he's saying, this is to believers. I'm loving my believers. I'm loving the Christians. So as we read and study this passage, we want to remember that this is Paul is addressing Christians that already know Jesus is Lord, that already believe in him, not people who don't yet know or don't yet believe. And that's important because of, of what he says. We're going to get there. But we want to be keep that in our minds as we look at this. This is written to Christians. Now, um, this, um, I don't know what I was trying to say there. So, but this passage, this verses 12 through 18 has a list of things that we need to do to grow. And if this included unbelievers, then it would mean something different because if it were written to unbelievers, it would be Paul giving instructions on how to earn God's favor. Can you earn God's favor? No. So because he is writing to my beloved, he's writing to Christians, he's writing to the Philippian church, they aren't trying to earn favor by doing these things. They already have God's favor. They are doing it. He is telling them this is how you become more Christ-like not how you earn God's favor. So Paul's writing to Christians and he says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. Now, most of you have kids in your lives in one way, shape, or form. How old were they when they disobeyed for the first time? <laughs> not very old at all, right? And at that, at that age, when they're really little, they look right at you and they do whatever it is that you told them not to do, right? Part of the development of, of a child is them testing the limits that you as an authority in their lives have put out for them. And that includes crossing the line sometimes. They're not obeying perfectly. They have not always obeyed in that sense of the word, but Paul's not saying that his beloved, that, that the Philippians in the Philippian church, or by extension, all Christians, he's not saying that we are perfect and we literally always obeyed. He's talking about being obedient to God and his word, the Bible is clear, is, is the clear path. The Philippian church was committed to obeying the commands of God. It wasn't perfect, but it was a lifestyle of obedience. They had a desire to obey. And this, this obedience is not just when Paul is watching, but also when he's absent. Or where's Paul? In prison. In Rome, in prison, right? Now, have you ever seen those videos? They're they're all over the place, but it's the, the parent or some adult leaves a kid with a temptation of some sort on a plate, right? Usually it's some sort of candy or food. Um, 
My favorite is the marshmallows. If you haven't watched the marshmallow one, it's hilarious. They tell the child, don't eat it. In some cases, they'll even say, don't even touch it. And then, but you can, you can have it when I walk back in the room. And it's even more hilarious when there's two kids and one is like, and the other one's like, what are you doing? Right? But in many cases, in all of them, it's interesting to watch how the kids react. But in many cases, the kids touch and even eat the item. But there's one video where there were many children. It showed just a variety of different kids with the same situation. And they, um, but they were each done separately. And they were given a marshmallow. And they were told not to eat it or touch it. Now, some kids, they succeeded. Though I remember one that was really close to touching it. And then he ended up putting his, his hands under his legs so that he wouldn't, right? He stopped himself. Um, some kids just forget that and ate the marshmallow, right? There was one that took that picked it up and took this tiny little nibble and then put it right back on the plate, but made sure that the nibble was, was face down, right? Um, one, one that leaned over and, and licked the marshmallow. So he didn't touch it with his fingers. He didn't eat it, but he licked the marshmallow. Um, one that I remember wasn't going to eat or touch it, but wanted to smell it. And then, and so she was like, I'm just going to smell it and picked it up and was like, because oh, she had touched it to smell the marshmallow. Like it just, so they didn't think about being caught as much as it's the fact that they weren't being seen in the moment because they, I mean, if they had stopped and processed, they would have known the adult's going to come back. They're going to see that I've, the marshmallow is gone. Right. Um, but they didn't think about being caught later. It was nobody's here to watch me. Nobody's here to stop me. I'm just going to go. But what Paul's saying is the Philippians didn't try to sneak something in. They didn't try to, to nibble the marshmallow or lick the marshmallow they were doing what they were supposed to be doing. I forgot to turn on my do not disturb. Sorry, hang on. Then I won't get notices. Um, so they didn't think, they, but they knew that Paul was in jail. The Philippians knew Paul was in jail and that he wouldn't be out anytime soon because they knew the Roman justice process was long, right? They could have gotten away with things. They could have used Paul's absence as an excuse to disobey, but they didn't. So Stephen Lawson says, as a Christian, the same path of obedience has been set before you in your life. Being a believer who is saved by God's grace does not negate your responsibility to keep God's moral law. There may be times when you will be without the level of spiritual support from older Christians that you enjoyed when you first came to faith or from those whom you have come to rely upon in your walk of faith. But as with the Philippians, this is not an excuse for compromising on your obedience. First uh, John 2, 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments... Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, he is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. 
by this we may know that we are in him whoever says whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked that's not a long passage we're eight words in but the first question you need to ask yourself is do i do this in my life is it my desire to obey um, to as if i've always obeyed to always obey to have that type of attitude and then the second part of that is the next phrase there the is it my desire to obey whether or not someone is watching then it goes on to because true paul fashion we're still continuing the sentence even with a new thought um the next phrase of verse 12 says work out your salvation now this is another time when acknowledging and recognizing and remembering Paul is writing to my beloved to Christians is important because when he says work out your salvation he's not saying work for your salvation biblically the word salvation has three parts there's the past the present and the future so stick with me you've heard this before you'll hear it again I'm sure but um, past is that deliverance that justification is the theological word justification you are immediately saved from the penalty of sin present the present salvation is is that you possess the salvation it's sanctification progressively being saved from the power and practice of sin so you're immediately the past immediately um immediately saved from the penalty of sin the present you're progressively being saved from the power and practice of sin it's that idea of pursuing holiness and then future is glorification it's the future enjoyment of benefits and blessings ultimately you're saved from the presence of sin And so when he talks about working out your salvation, he's talking about because it has those three parts. And so in this instance, the word salvation is referring to the sanctification portion. And when you're working, that word that Paul uses for work means to labor, to expend energy, to exert effort. We're doing um, work in their that's their test tomorrow is work power and energy work is force times distance if you don't move you haven't done work right so sanctification is a process and aspects of that um we'll read james 4 7. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So it's resisting temptation. And then 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 8. Have nothing to do with God.
so when when I memorized that verse when um, when I was in college, the First Timothy one, it, the phrase that, and I don't remember which version it was, but the phrase was "discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness." That was the phrase there in verse seven. I, I mean, I learned the whole thing, but but that was what sort of stuck with me is that sanctification. You're disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness. And then Paul gives us what our motivation is for all this hard work. It's fear and trembling. That's our, that's our motivation. Fear, the Greek word phobos, terror, dread, reverence. When it's used here in this context, it is a healthy reverential awe of God. It is taking God seriously. The word trembling, I couldn't pronounce it, so it's just, but it's it's quaking. The Blue Letter Bible says that biblically it is the image of someone doing his best because he knows to whom he owes the duty. So when it says work it out your own salvation with fear and trembling, it's with a healthy, wholesome, reverential awe of God, knowing who it is, that you owe that work to. Now, as we think about the book as a whole, one of the themes that comes up throughout and will later in this passage that we're doing today, one of the themes is joy. Repeatedly comes up throughout the book of Philippians. Joy in Christian living seems to be the opposite of fear and trembling, doesn't it? On the surface level, it does. But Stephen J. Lawson says, the gladness that believers experience in the Lord grows out of the fertile soil of fearing God with reverential awe. We are called to tremble joyfully in our walk with God. And so that's our role. And then we're going to see in verse 13, God's role. It says, I didn't give somebody verse 13, did I, to read? No, good, because I wasn't planning to, and then I realized I may have. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So Philippians 1.6, I did give that one, right? <clears throat> I'm convinced that God, who began this good work in you, will carry it through to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. So God began the work at conversion. That was that justification. And God will continue to work. That's what Philippians 1.6 says. That's what Philippians 2.13 says. The work here is in the present tense. So God is continually and actively working. But it's not God doing it for them and by extension us. But it's God empowering us. Because remember, it's that beloved from earlier, those Christians, God is empowering us to do the work. And this act brings pleasure to God, but should also bring pleasure to us. Now, verses 12 through 13, those are solid theology. But what do we, what do we need to really do to work out our salvation? And Paul tells us, and so we're going to reread verses 14 through 18 of chapter 2. 
Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Now we get to the nitty gritty. We get to those details that we've been wanting since the beginning of this book. These are the specific things that we can directly apply to how we live our daily lives. And so first, notice in your printout version which should be similar to any other version that you're reading, but in your printout version, it's the second and third words. It says, do all things. What does all mean? All means all. All encompassing at home, at work, at church, at the grocery store, in line at the post office, everywhere. Everywhere and everything. And we are to do all things without grumbling or disputing. No, grumbling is uh, gogosmos, something like that. Murmuring or muttering. But it's also defined as a secret displeasure not openly avowed. That's what Blue Letter Bible says. Grumbling doesn't just mean murmuring to somebody else. Grumbling is also that private inner muttering that we don't worry about because we don't actually voice it. I've told the story before, so I'm not going to do the whole thing, but the little girl is at the dinner table and she gets mad and she stands up and dad tells her to sit down, right? And they argue a little more and dad finally gets her to sit. But as she sits, the little girl looks right into dad's eyes and says, I'm standing on the inside. <laughs> right? That's grumbling. Then it says um, disputing or questioning. Um, that means arguing or debating. The idea of continually questioning what is being done. This is not Paul telling us, you blindly just follow whoever and whatever. And if there's something in your church that that you're curious about, go and ask the question so that you can understand. But you ask it with the right tone of voice. You ask it with the right attitude and the heart, knowing that you're asking because you want to know the answer, not because you want to change someone's mind. When you grumble and you dispute, you are tearing apart the unity of the body of Christ. So it's do all things without grumbling or questioning. Why shouldn't we grumble or dispute or question? Verse 15 starts with the word that, right? So that means do these things so that, so here's the why says so that you may shine the light of Christ. Now blameless means to be free from fault, 
not sinless, right? Not that perfection, um, but it's not a blatant moral issue. And that's when it says that you may be blameless and innocent. And then it says children of God. What does it mean to be a child of God? Part of the family. Yeah, it, you are a little God, like little G God from the big G God, but you are representing him. You are, you are showing that, you, you know, you ever had your kids go out and do something and it, they do something that they aren't supposed to do and they know not to do and you are just mortified because of how they behaved then and there, that they know better, right? Same idea. Child of God being, and that's the blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish. Um, and, and so when we're seen by someone else as a child of God, you have to show evidence to convince someone else that you belong to God. And when I've flown with my kids and I, you go and, well, this was before like Andrew had his driver's license. We don't fly that much. So, um, we, yeah, before he had his driver's license, we flew and that he had to have, we had to have my ID and their birth certificates and, and Ray's idea if, if he's been with me and their birth certificates so that they can verify, the airline can show, they can have evidence that they belong to me, that they are my children and that all the names match and all of that, right? They get questioned by TSA if I'm their mother, like it takes them up separately from me. Now, when, when I flew, when Abby was itty bitty, they didn't separate the two of us at that point, but, um, when, when they got old enough, um, they would, uh, they would then go separate and they would be asked directly, is that your mother? Is that, and, and all of those things.